Father, I ask that the words I have prepared will be acceptable unto you, and that our hearts will be open to your word, so that we may be changed by it. Amen. Well, in the history of the church, there are few conversions that have been as dramatic as that of the 18th century slave trader turned priest, John Newton. In his autobiography, Out of the Depths, he describes how a storm at sea dramatically changed the course of his life. We read how at the end of a long journey, not too far from port, his trade ship was attacked by a sudden tempest. The heavy waves racked the side of the ship with unrelenting force, eventually piercing the side of the hull. Normally such a blow would be fatal, but the ship was miraculously spared. In an answer to Newton's prayer, some loose cargo temporarily plugged the gap created by the storm, keeping the vessel afloat long enough for the crew to reach safety. Now, while the storm caused a terrible but temporary panic on the crew, the effect on Newton was more permanent. The mighty waves had shaken what he would later describe as a self-confidence and indifference to God. The bracing Atlantic winds had wakened him to the reality of God's love, about which he would later rhapsodize in his timeless hymn of salvation, Amazing Grace. This story is as inspiring as it is incredible. But there is a danger in hearing dramatic conversion narratives such as these. Because very often they leave out the uncomfortable reality of what salvation really involves. Indeed, such testimonies seem to suggest that the moment of conversion is both the beginning and the end of the Christian life. That release from the guilt of sin means release from its terrible grip on our lives. But we must not forget the important truth that grace always leads to discipleship and that forgiveness always calls us to holiness. The unabridged story of Newton's life does not allow such a folly. His autobiography records how this moment of revelation on a sinking ship began a long struggle against the shackles of sin that had pulled at his soul not least his involvement in the slave trade. We are deaf to these cries when we sing, with these trials when we sing Amazing Grace. But in another hymn called Prayers Answered by Crosses, Newton's inward trials are laid bare. Read his words with me. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own, own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed 
blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. A powerful hymn. And so different in tone to Amazing Grace that we might doubt it was penned by the same hand. But a cursory glance at the history books reminds us that almost all great believers have had to contend with this tension between consolation and trial. John Knox, the father of Presbyterianism, wrote of a time when his soul knew anger, wrath and indignation which it conceived against God, calling all his promises in doubt. Martin Luther, the great reformer, spoke of a time when Christ was wholly lost and he was shaken by desperation and blasphemy against God. And of course, Scripture too is full of frustration and anger at God for seeming removed. Job, Habakkuk, the prophets all bemoan God's silence in times of trouble and inner trial. And let us not forget Christ's lament on Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ's words, of course, are borrowed from the Psalms, which are full of laments to God. None more starkly or pertinently than the one we have read together this morning. The truth, then, is that however unwelcome they are, inward trials are frequent companions on the journey of faith. But let me be clear. By inward trials, I am not speaking about pain or suffering. Rather, I am referring to that spiritual dryness that can occur when the consolations of faith seem inadequate, when the still small voice of God is so quiet it can be virtually impossible to hear. It is this apparent tension between the comfort and solace of God's amazing grace and the inward trial that is often the reality of the Christian life that I want us to explore this morning. Indeed, how are we to understand Jesus' promise of rest when we are weighed down with worry, doubt, and fear? What did Jesus mean when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Is Jesus sugarcoating the tough reality of the gospel? Is he suggesting that the Christian life is cozy and comfortable? Are his words an ironic confirmation of what the new atheists say? That faith is nothing more than a crutch for the intellectually and emotionally infirm? Well, surely not. But you know, we in the church must be wary of hearing his words as such. Because Christ is not the spiritual life coach that many in today's church would have him be. We cannot reduce his gospel message to the domesticated and the banal. For if we listen more carefully, we will find that Jesus offers something much more uncomfortable than we are sometimes willing to hear. For as we shall see this morning, Jesus promised of rest 
is nothing less than a call to radical discipleship. And so we've got two tasks before us. Firstly, we need to read Matthew 11 again to unpick this apparent tension between comfort and trial. We need to listen again to this story to allow it to speak to us afresh. Secondly, we need to listen to the experience of the inward trial of God's people in Psalm 44. If we are to learn how the importance of such trials is necessary for our spiritual growth. So let's begin with Matthew 11. Well, it's important first to place this passage in its context. Who is Jesus speaking to when he says these words? Well, at the beginning of chapter 11, we read that after Jesus finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So it's significant that the disciples are not with Jesus at this point. Instead, his listeners are those who are hearing his message for the first time. Many of them would have heard of this Jesus before, especially the rumors that he has the power to heal the sick and even to forgive sins. They would have come to Jesus with all kinds of problems weighing on their souls, guilt of past sin, anger at a friend's betrayal, or feeling weary and purposeless. To a people on the margins of society, Jesus' promise of rest must have been like manna in the wilderness. And of course, they would not have been disappointed. Christ has the power to console our souls, to take away the guilt of sin, to teach us to forgive, and to invigorate our lives with new purpose. The words then would have been manna indeed. But the words Jesus spoke to his disciples in the previous chapter might not have been so well received. For in chapter 10, Jesus is speaking this time to his disciples and in private. He is about to send them out into public for the first time without him. It is a big moment for them, a chance to prove themselves in front of the master. But Jesus' pep talk could not have been more different from his soothing words to the crowd. Listen to what he says. Do not suppose I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. No gentle words here. Just hard-nosed reality. So what is the reason then for this disparity between his words to the crowd and his words to the disciples? Well, it is not that Jesus' words to the disciples are more honest. Rather, these are the words that the twelve who have been following him on his three-year ministry are now ready to hear. Jesus is preparing them for the trials they will face for his sake in the future. At the beginning, he walked with them. But now he is sending them out alone. While the disciples are mature enough for this message to hear of swords and crosses would only serve to dishearten the fledgling crowd. To the disciples, Christ reveals that the gospel will bring trial. To the crowd, he reveals that it will bring comfort. But both, in fact, are true. Indeed, if we look closely 
at his words in Matthew 11. We realize that this tension between comfort and trial is there for us all to see. Wholesome words like rest, easy, and light are juxtaposed with the words burden and yoke. Christ says to the crowd, come and get rest from me. But he also says, take my burdens upon you. In other words, while Jesus promises release from the guilt of sin in our lives, he also places new demands on us. If we accept his grace, we cannot expect to remain the same. Because God's grace extends to the restoration of our fallen, broken humanity. And this process requires effort. To explain this more fully, we need to consider two key words in the passage. Firstly, this word yoke. Now, if you don't already know, and I'm conscious I'm not speaking to my home congregation in Armagh, a yoke is a farming implement, a wooden frame that is placed on an animal to help it bear a load. Now, it is common in Jewish tradition for this farming tool to symbolize a person's obligations to the law. And when Jesus offers the crowd a new yoke, it would have been understood in these terms. By accepting his grace, a new yoke, a new obligation is placed on our shoulders. It does not require strict obligation to the law, nor does it demand affiliation to a religious tradition. Instead, Jesus' yoke demands conformity to him. The burden he gives us is to become like him, gentle and humble in heart. Secondly, easy. Well, this word is misleading. Because becoming like Jesus means to live like him. And as we know from his words to the disciples, this can mean struggle and hardship. A more helpful translation, therefore, might be well-fitting. Because remember, a yoke is a wooden frame that's designed to help us with work. Some are ill-fitting and make the burden harder to carry, but some are well-adjusted to the shoulders and help to ease the load. The yoke Jesus places on us helps us to carry our burdens and to endure the trials of life. The yoke is still a tool for hard work, But the wearisome and sometimes meaningless toil of our lives is given new eternal purpose and relevance when we do it for his glory. So to sum up, by reading this passage in its proper context and by listening more attentively to the words Jesus uses, we can see that an easy, stress-free existence is not on offer here. Instead, Christ invites us to follow him and be changed from the inside out. By reading Matthew 11 in this way, we come to an understanding that comfort and trial, grace and discipleship, forgiveness and holiness are not the antithesis of each other. Instead, they work in harmony to conform us to the image of Christ which is the image of God. 
And so we're left with some difficult questions. If discipleship brings trial as much as it brings comfort, how are we to deal with the reality of this? How are we to cope when God feels remote, even despite our best efforts? Well, there are no easy answers to these questions, but there is much we can learn from listening to the experience of others. And so we'll turn now to Psalm 44, because nowhere in Scripture is this feeling of abandonment more pertinently expressed. Certainly there is no other psalm quite like this one. At no other point in Scripture do we find such an untempered, brutal assault on the faithfulness of God. This is a psalm written from the depths of despair. But the wondrous beauty of it, the miracle of it even, is that the psalmist's faith endures. Now we need to appreciate that its author is not speaking as an individual. He is speaking on behalf of Israel. In this sense, it is not as personal as some of the Davidic Psalms, but it still speaks powerfully to the inward trials of those who feel abandoned in a spiritual wasteland. So let us examine it more carefully. Well, the first point to consider is that this is not a psalm of confession, of wrongdoing, or disobedience on behalf of the people. Far from it. These are the words of a faithful people who act honorably before God. The psalmist begins by recounting God's goodness to his people in times gone by. We have heard with our ears of God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. The preceding verses sound almost celebratory in tone. God is praised for leading his people into the promised land. He is thanked for allowing his people to flourish. And he is lauded for delivering victory over the enemy. The psalmist even humbles the nation by acknowledging that every one of these accomplishments belongs to God alone. My sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. The tone is thankful, respectful, humble. What we have here are a people who are united in the conviction that they are in a right relationship with God. They not only believe the stories of what happened to their people in the past, but they believe that the same principles are true for them in the present. It is so important that we acknowledge this conviction before we consider the cry of outrage that is to follow. Because in verse 9, the psalm takes a sudden shift in tone. A mood of praise and thankfulness makes way for bewilderment and despair. As the psalmist wails, you have rejected us. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases, now you've walked off and left us. Every line that follows plunges the psalmist into deeper distress and turmoil. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. You sold your people for a pittance. You have made us a byword among the nations. While it's true that other psalms lament God's abandonment, 
or apparent abandonment, they are tempered by an admission of guilt and a plea for forgiveness. But here, there is no confession of wrongdoing. On the contrary, the psalmist is adamant that God's people have done nothing to deserve such ill treatment. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from the path. And he doesn't stop here. In verse 22, he says, For your sake we face death all day long. Now, in another context, these words could be read as an act of humility. But here, they take on an accusatory tone. One commentator describes the verse as a statement of downright insolence. An insolence which is amplified in the closing verses. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. So how then is this psalm to be resolved? How can the psalmist reconcile the hardship his nation faces with the silence of God? Well, the simple answer is he doesn't. And we aren't offered some trite explanation. Instead, he simply brings his plight before the throne of God and lays it at his feet. And he hopes in spite of the silence. But surely that's the point of faith, isn't it? Because in doing so, the psalmist demonstrates a faith that I feel is infinitely more substantial than that of his ancestors in days long ago. Because the faith of his ancestors was based on the reality of a God who was tangibly acting for Israel. The faith of the psalmist, however, is in a God who is silent. And it's all the stronger for it. Because from the, inner, the darkness of this inward trial emerges a faith that will sustain Israel in even darker days to come, when in just a few generations, the entire nation will be exiled to Babylon. And you know, in the same way, times of inward trial can help us to grow strong in faith even when it does not seem that way at the time. This is why C.S. Lewis' fictional devil Screwtape is so quick to reprimand his nephew Wormwood for celebrating in his human's current spiritual trial. Listen to his words. Our cause is never more in danger, he writes, than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Such is the faith that will move mountains. Well, I'm almost finished. This morning we've heard from Matthew 11 that Christ calls us to radical discipleship. And we've heard from Psalm 44 that times of inward trial can strengthen our faith. By placing these seemingly disparate passages of Scripture together, we have discovered that the gospel is both consoling and surprising. 
both safe and dangerous. It would be wonderful if at the moment of conversion we were all made perfect, but it is more than obvious that we are not. For Christianity is not a panacea to make us feel better. It is a relationship. And like all relationships, there are highs and there are lows. There are moments of intimacy and there are moments that are trying. But this is the way the living God teaches us to walk in holiness, mature in the faith. The medieval mystic St. John of the Cross understood this aspect of the Christian life well. In his famous work, The Dark Night of the Soul, he explains how God cares for us like a loving mother when we are taking our first steps in the faith, nourishing us with spiritual milk. But there will come a time when he will call us to go deeper, to stand on our own two feet. This is what he writes. God's love is not content to leave us in our weakness. And for this reason, he takes us into a dark night. He weans us from all the pleasures by giving us dry times and inward darkness. No soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works passively in that soul by means of a dark night. Surely this truth has never been more pertinent for the church than today. In a society where faith has become a byword for the superstitious and the naive, spiritual maturity is needed more than ever. In Ephesians, Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy to which we have been called. Well, if we are serious about that call, if we really do want to live our lives for God rather than for ourselves, then we must be prepared for spiritual growing pains. We must face the inward trials of our spiritual lives with fortitude and trust in a faithful God. Because it is in this way that we learn to forgo selfish ambition and vain pride to find our all in Christ our Lord. May this be our prayer. Amen.